Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to uh, actually study for his comprehensive exams instead of just sitting around eating ice cream, staring at the ceiling, thinking about what sci-fi novel he's going to read when his final exams are actually finished. So this episode of Making of a Historian, I'm going to be talking about uh, the problem I have with the idea of nature. I got into such a big fight with some ex-girlfriend at some point in my life because I complained about the idea of nature. She said one of those things that uh, your ex-girlfriends, when they're your girlfriends, inevitably say that make you just put your head in your hands and go, I disagree with that completely. Something like, God, I wish that we could get, you know, more natural these days. And, And that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't think that natural exists. And I told her as much, probably in a wheedling, arrogant tone, and we had a fight about it. And in this episode, I want to actually make the case that that what we see as a divide between the artificial and the natural isn't just wrong, it's something that was produced by history itself. And this is a little surprising. You'd think from the way that this list in particular, my list about modernity and urbanization, is formed that I would think that there's something really special about city life and modernity that makes it different from everything else. You would think maybe, you know, that the easy answer would be that I would say the Industrial Revolution changes everything. It allows people to live in a world completely separated from nature. But this separation is only temporary, and we're eventually going to have to get back into the natural world. That's the easy answer. But I really don't think that that's true. I think that Oftentimes, people have been able to imagine that, quote unquote, nature has been somehow defeated or, you know, put on pause, but it's never true. And we can see this by looking in the city, especially this new kind of modern city that grows up in the 19th century uh, from the big processes that we've discussed all throughout these podcasts trade, expansion of the national market, and cheap energy. So one way that we can look at this is through historicizing the idea of nature itself. Historicizing is a really useful word that uh, sounds way too academic. What it means is to actually recognize that concepts like nature have a history, that they change over time, that they're not stable entities. So when I say nature to you, you probably imagine a thing outside. It's probably outside of the city in some place that is quote-unquote untouched by people. And it has this moral quality to it. It is important for us to keep it safe, to keep it pure, to keep it untouched. There's something good about it having it out there without humans interacting with it. But that view of nature as untrammeled wilderness that through its beauty helps to reform people is completely created by history. In the 18th century, people thought of wilderness as wasteland, as something that is disgusting and dangerous and wrong, that people should settle on and farm and tend to. 
And when you think about it, it makes sense because most of Europe uh, is at least the Europe that we talk about, uh, Britain and maybe France and Germany, if I'm especially, uh, you know, geographically uh, promiscuous, is settled and has been settled for a really, really long time and settled by city dwelling farming people. And so there's not a ton of wilderness out there. The idea is, amongst 18th century folk, that to farm a place is to make it natural, to make it good. That's what God wants you to do. God wants to make the world into a garden, into a thing that is well-ordered and, uh, you know, perfected. And wilderness is the exact opposite. Wilderness is something that has been left to, 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 to idleness, to, to vice. Things change in the 18th century. In the 18th century, we get a new kind of feeling that's being discussed by thinkers called the sublime. We've discussed it. It's, it's this feeling that we don't get a ton of going out into nature, usually as a man, usually alone, walking onto some big parapet and seeing a mountain that's so big that it baffles you. And this sublime is in some ways pleasurable, but it's also some ways terrifying because it shows you, the individual, that there are processes out there that are too big for humans to deal with. In the 18th century, a ton of artists start to think about the sublime and they start to wrestle with it. And they wrestle with it as they're traveling to new places where there are more experiences for isolated men with food in their bellies to go out and have aesthetic experiences and then go back to cities and write about them. We're thinking tourism. We're thinking settlement in the American frontier. We're thinking painters going out and painting landscapes in Australia. And as human power increases, as the cheap energy modernity that we live in increases our ability to dramatically alter the landscape, this sublime changes. And instead of seeing the natural world, quote unquote, instead of seeing the wilderness as something that's immensely powerful, we now begin to see it as something that is under threat, as something that is fragile and that is uh, about to be destroyed by human hands. This happens mostly in America where we have the experience of Western expansion, where uh, people continue to settle out into what was once, you know, untrammeled, quote-unquote, wilderness, ignoring the fact that it was settled for thousands of years by Native Americans. Um, but the idea that humans step onto this land that has somehow been, un, you know, untainted by human life and then we build a, a parking lot on it and we and we destroy it. Now, this is a dangerous idea. This is a dangerous idea because when you export it worldwide, when we argue that one of the things that good, you know, environmental minded people do is protect wilderness. Well, that doesn't really fly outside of the U.S. where we have like vast open spaces. When you port it to, say, like a place like India, what you're asking to do is you're asking if you want to protect wilderness, to protect forests, to protect tigers, to protect all of those, you know, fragile ecosystems. Well, those fragile ecosystems have been settled for hundreds or even thousands of years. And so if you make the claim that now what you have to do is to remove humans from it, 
Well, you're making the claim that because of the rights of the wilderness, because of some sort of inner power of the wilderness, we have to take the people out. And the people are usually poor. This happens over and over and over again. In 1900, for example, there is an international uh, committee formed on protecting African wildlife. Predictably, of course, no African countries are invited. These, this is Britain and France and Germany. And they discuss the sort of wildlife that they want to protect. In nowhere in these discussions do people mention the actual people who've been living on this land. So, that being said, I've, I've just laid out this, this historicization of the wilderness. I've argued that the very idea that we have of the wilderness is some sort of, you know, pure zone of, 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 of natural freedom is historical. But I want to talk more now about the city and argue that a lot of the things that we think of when we think of the development of the new modern city as, as being, you know, contradictory to the natural environment are in fact deeply involved in the environment. So first I want to talk about urban improvements. There's a story I could tell and I have told about the growing uh, commodiousness of uh, European cities in the 18th and 19th century. This would involve street paving, uh, street lighting, the improvement of water resources, uh, the improvement of sanitation, all of these big developments of people getting together and acting to make the city cleaner and well-ordered. And that story is great. It's, it's, it's really important to tell. And it's really essential to understanding how the city becomes a place of freedom. But in telling that sometimes, we make the city seem like it stands outside of, of, of the hinterland that surrounds it. We make it seem like all of these activities are, are bracketed out. And I just want to argue that in every single one of these steps, we see the environment. So let's take street lighting. When we think about street lighting, well, we think about people building lampposts and hiring the, you know, the, 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 the lamp lighters to walk up and down the streets every night and light every single lamp. But we don't think about what actually is being used to generate those lights. We don't think about the material that's lighting the houses. And when we think about that, well, we have to, you know, tie in this defeat of the night by the city with the natural world. Tallow candles, which lit up the early 18th century city, come from rendered beef fat. Uh, the whale oil lamps that lit up the 19th century city come from uh, the whales that, that swam in the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. The coal gas that lights up the late 19th century city comes from mines. In all of these situations, this thing which seems in a lot of histories to be the ultimate artificial movement, the defeat of the night, we can connect with something solid and material and totally outside of the city. Now, sometimes, importantly, these processes are hidden from view. We don't see the whales that make the whale oil that are burnt in the lamps. We don't smell them. They're gone. That's one of the pleasures of whale oil, that it is, you know, without trace, that it burns without smoke, that it doesn't smell. 
Similarly with uh, coal gas, as the 19th century increases and people are able to build more advanced uh, uh, gas works, the gas works are put further and further outside the city. But this does not mean that the environment is somehow bracketed, that somehow the city can live without the environment that sustains it. We can tell the same story with uh, this narrative of public health and public sanitation. I tell this story through the Great Stink of London in uh, 1858. Ooh, have to check that later. But what happens is that a bug, a little tiny uh, 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 bacteria, cholera, uh, starts to infect Britain. It comes from India, perhaps due to changes uh, in the El Nino cycle pushed by the explosion of Mount Tambora, but that's, you know, probably not true. Cholera comes to Europe, and cholera devastates people. Cholera is a deeply disturbing disease. Uh, you basically catch it, and you start pooping yourself until you're dead, and it can take Really, not a very long time to poop yourself to death. Six hours, three hours. People talk about getting cholera and dying in, at the space of a dance party. Now, one of the things that spreads cholera through London is the popularity of flush toilets. This is an idea that you can keep the city cleaner by putting waste not into cesspits in the ground that are then emptied by night soilmen, but rather to just flush it into the River Thames and let it go out naturally. But this doesn't work, and the poop gets stuck in the river. And how it's solved is through the creation of new sewage systems and embankments and pumping stations that are all filled, uh, all made through steam pumps. And here I want to just point out that we have an interaction between, um, you know, bacteria, cholera, humans, and their culture wanting to expel their, their filth out away from them, to not pollute the place that they live. Uh, coal, new energy sources, technology, pumping stations, all of them are interacting to make, you know, this particular weird sort of story happen. Finally, I want to talk about urban animals or synanthropes, which mean the animals that, you know, have evolved around humans, that have grown up around humans. And I'm going to do this quickly because it's late at night and I'm getting really tired uh, and I shouldn't have waited so long to record this podcast because it's getting a bit sloppy. But I think that by looking at animals in the city, we can really, you know, dissolve the line between natural and, and artificial, finally. And the, the, the animal that I, I want to talk about, and I've talked about a lot in this podcast, is the pigeon. The pigeon is usually described today as a rat with wings, as something dirty, as something bad. But the very things that make the pigeon annoying for urban planners and for, you know, people walking around Trafalgar Square, that they love to come back to the same place day in, day out, that they are very easy around humans and that their poop has a lot of nitrogen in it and so, like, decays statues. All of those things made them very welcoming to people 
you know, you know, 100 or 150 years ago. The pigeon was the ultimate domestic animal, which is why so many generations of people identified it with peace, tranquility, and civility. We just don't know these associations because we think of them for the pigeon's other name, the dove. When we think of the dove, we think of a nice white bird. But the dove of the Bible might not be that pure white bird. It might be the messy rock dove that we think of as the pigeon. The pigeon is monogamous. The pigeon roosts in the eaves of our houses. The pigeon raises its children alongside us as we raise our children. And when we need help, the pigeon will help us. We can harvest its guano. We can eat its flesh if we're hungry. We can steal its eggs if we're not so hungry. And all these things have endeared pigeons to us and have made us lift up the pigeon's natural predator as, you know, similarly a symbol of deceit and aggression, the hawk. The hawk versus the dove is still a motivating metaphor of political life today. But we forget the pigeon. We, we allow ourselves to think of the pigeon as a dirty urban bird, as something that is not belonging in the places that we live in. We put up spikes to keep out the pigeon, but really the pigeon is in cities because the pigeon belongs with people. We've evolved together. The pigeon exists all throughout the world now. It goes everywhere where the person goes. And so thinking about urban centers is not simply places for people to go, but places that are good for other kinds of animals, not merely pigeons, but for rats and pigs and cows and foxes, I think lets us think, realize that the cities that we live in are, are, are ecologies, that they are open up to nature, just like we are. Thanks very much for listening to this sleepy and way too sloppy uh, episode of Making of a Historian. Um, I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, maybe not this one, but if you like the show in general, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tell a friend, tweet me a question at, at Mackie Teacher. Um, thanks very much for listening, and I'll speak to you guys tomorrow where I will be finishing off this uh, little mini series on urbanization and the environment. Can't wait. 